Thank you, worship team. You have probably noticed already the table set up because we're going to conclude our worship today coming before uh, the tables for the Lord's Supper. Uh, to, uh, to help us really prepare for that, our text this morning is one that's probably familiar to many of you, a text that typically is associated with the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there in the New Testament to Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 11. We'll be roughly in the section of verses 17 through 34. But while you're turning there, let me come at this from a little bit of a different direction this morning. Uh, one of my, my passions, outside my passion for the Lord and His work, is uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail. Some of you may be familiar with the Appalachian Trail, others of you may not. The Appalachian Trail is a wilderness trail that is roughly 2,200 miles long. It runs through 14 states, starting at in the south, where I've started at Springer Mountain in Georgia, and going up through 13 more states to end at Mount Katahdin in Maine. And uh, each year I get out and I do like a little 40 to 50 mile chunk. So I think I was doing the math as I was sitting here. I'll be 96 at this pace before I finish it. So uh, maybe I need to pick up the pace. Uh, But it is a great joy for me. One of the toughest sections of the Appalachian Trail, one I've not hiked yet, is the White Mountains and the state of New Hampshire. And in the middle of the White Mountains, there is one mountain in particular, Mount Washington. As the trail, Mount Washington is, is roughly 6,300 miles, excuse me, 6,300 feet high. As the trail winds up Mount Washington, as it crosses into Timberline, where the trees stop, hikers are met with a sign that you see up on the screen there, and let me read this warning sign to you. Stop! The area ahead has the worst weather in America. Many have died here from exposure, even in the summer. Turn back now if the weather is bad. And this is no joke. They are not exaggerating. There's a weather station on the top of Mount Washington, and that weather station has recorded the highest wind velocity ever measured at a surface wind st- or, uh, weather station, 231 miles per hour. Even in the middle of the summer, when it is balmy and sunny, a storm, just because of where the mountain is located and the conditions and weather patterns, a storm can whip in in a matter of moments, and suddenly hikers find themselves wet from sleet or even snow, even in the middle of the winter. So, hypothermia is a very real risk there. Unprepared hikers not heeding this warning sign can actually die, and they've kept records of this. Since they started keeping records over the last 100 years, 137 people have died on Mount Washington due to conditions like this. But if you're hiking, especially if you're not really familiar with hiking, you tend to do what most people do. You tend to just go right around that sign and keep hiking. That warning sign exists for a purpose, but most people 
ignore or give little thought to that warning sign and its purpose. Well, I I bring this up because there is a similar warning sign in God's Word about taking the Lord's Supper. And again, just like hikers typically overlook that warning sign uh, at the tree line of Mount Washington, we tend to do this as we approach the Lord's Supper. We tend to overlook or go around this warning sign. What is it that you probably know from this passage in 1 Corinthians 11? You know probably verses 23 and 24. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, this is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. How many times have you heard that and the reading stops there after verse 25. But look at what it says just two verses later. Here is the Mount Washington warning sign, verse 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why, verse 28, you should examine yourself first before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Verse 29, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment? I thought all our judgment was dealt with at the cross. It was. It was. And as we'll see later in verse 32, what Paul is talking about here is not eternal judgment that results in the loss of salvation. He's speaking rather of temporal judgment, of God's loving hand in disciplining us, in chastening us to get our attention, to turn us back to Him and to each other. But if that hasn't gotten your attention, look what he says in verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill and a number sleep. So as a result of this temporal judgment, at least in the church there in Corinth, Paul says some were growing weak. Now, now weak can refer in the New Testament to the deterioration of our physical health, but it can refer as well to the deterioration of our mental health and our emotional health. The onset of depression can be described as growing weak. The onset of anxiety can be described as growing weak. Ill, the word ill there, or some of your versions may translate it as sick, refers to really it's, it's limited to physical health, ongoing physical health, the deterioration of physical health, whether that's through some kind of illness or disease. But sleep, as some of your versions may say death, sleep, that refers to death. That refers, by the way, and we'll see this more clearly in a moment, very specifically to the death of a believer, a believer whose soul goes to be with the Lord when, when, when he or she dies. The, the soul doesn't sleep, but the body in the ground, in the grave, sleeps, rests until the resurrection where it is raised up again. So what is Paul saying here? In that particular church, and what was going on in that church, 
the Holy Spirit has given Paul the discernment to see a cause and effect connection between the present illnesses and even death of some of the people in that church and their behavior as they come to the Lord's Supper. Now, I want you to hear this clearly. He does not say that all weakness, that all sickness, and all death is related to a behavioral issue, is related to sin. That is not what he's saying here, but he's saying that is a way that God can chasten us. That is a way that God can get our attention. Paul raises this to us as well as to the Corinthians as a warning. Well, who is this warning directed to specifically? And, and what is it warning against? If it's directed at us, what is it warning us against? Uh, a key phrase of this, of untangling this, is in verse 27. Again, we read this already, but let me repeat it. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. So if, if we partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and we'll, we'll unpack that in just a moment here, what Paul is saying is we make ourselves liable for profaning the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, we subject ourselves to God's, not God's punishment, not God's judgment, eternal judgment that's dealt with at the cross forever, but God's loving discipline, God's loving chastening. So we need to understand what taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner really means. We especially need to understand this because this passage has a long history of being misunderstood. It is usually taken out of its context. We want to see how is it fit within what Paul has said already in this chapter? How is it fit within the themes that Paul has been developing all through this letter? So let me begin with some misconceptions, and I'll phrase it in the form of a question. Is this a warning to unbelievers? I've heard this taught. I have probably taught this at earlier points in my Christian life. It's taught sometimes that this warning is to an unbeliever, somebody who may know who Jesus is, but they have not surrendered their life to Him. They've not turned to Him as the Savior, as the one that they put all of their religious, their spiritual confidence in. They've not turned Him as their Lord yet. And so sometimes this is applied that, you know, well, if you haven't done that, you are an unforgiven sinner. As, as an unforgiven sinner, you are unworthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Now, it is, I I need to say this, it is inappropriate for someone who doesn't follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to take of His Supper. Just like it's inappropriate for me, I'm not a a Muslim, to, uh, I don't believe in Muhammad, it's inappropriate for me to celebrate one of the feasts of Ramadan. But Paul is not addressing unbelievers here. Even though that is an inappropriate thing, and today as we take the Lord's Supper, if you are not yet at the place where you know Jesus is Savior and Lord, you should just discreetly pass the elements by. You're not ready to partake of it. But this is not a warning to you. This is not a warning to you. How do I know that? Look at what he says about the consequence, the chastening in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and a number sleep 
He doesn't just say, and a number of you have died. He says, a number of you have sleep. And again, that refers to in the death of a believer, when our soul goes to be with Jesus, it doesn't sleep. It's in the presence of Jesus upon our physical death. But our body sleeps in the grave until it's raised again at the resurrection. Sleep is never used in the New Testament to speak of the death of an unbeliever. Get your concordance. Look up all the, the, the mentions of the word sleep, particularly, the, obviously, the ones that apply to, to death. You will never see that mentioned in terms of an unbeliever. This is mentioned to a believer. To the, he is, he's addressing believers here. And so this warning, again, even though it is inappropriate for an unbeliever to take the Lord's Supper, this warning is not to unbelievers. Well, if it's not a warning to unbelievers, is it a warning to strugglers? What are strugglers? I'm a struggler. You're a struggler. I define struggler simply as I know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and yet Galatians 5, there is that very real battle between the flesh and the spirit that still goes on in me. And you can identify this, I assume, if you're honest as well, that we still wrestle with sin in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is doing His sanctifying work and helping us to overcome that. But that is a lifelong project. And so our daily, our weekly experience is we struggle, and often we stumble, and often we fall. And I know in many churches, you know, we, 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 don't, we don't let that out there. We, we come and we put on our masks, and we want to make it like we've got everything under control. But if we were really honest, we would say, yeah, Galatians 5, the flesh is struggling with the Spirit in me. I'm a struggler. Well, I've heard this verse used to strugglers. I've heard, and and I, I probably have taught this before, that, you know, if you sinned on your way to church this morning in the car, you yelled at your kids, or you had a fight with your spouse, you have unconfessed sin in your life, you should not, you are not worthy of taking the Lord's Supper. Or go back, you know, if you had a good drive on the way to, to, to church this morning, go back over the following week. You know, is there unconfessed sin in your life that you haven't dealt with? Are you still struggling with sin in your life? And you're not worthy to take the Lord's Supper. I've heard this taught like that. Well, there are several problems with this kind of interpretation, that this is a warning to strugglers. First of all, no matter how many sins that you and I can think of and we can confess, if we sat out in the car in the parking lot trying to confess everything that we could think of coming to mind that we need to confess to come in and take the Lord's Supper, you know what? We still wouldn't cover it all. The writer of Proverbs put it this way, Proverbs 29, who can say, I am clean and pure without sin? The answer is nobody, not one of us. The Lord is still revealing all the sin that I need to deal with in my life. And the same is true with you. Even more importantly, you and I we can never make ourselves worthy. It's not like if I just confess enough, if I just redress uh, enough sin, if I'm just vulnerable enough, I can get myself into this worthy state so I can come in and I can take the Lord's Supper. It is not by our own efforts that we make ourselves worthy. Only Jesus Christ is worthy. 
He is the only worthy one. That's exactly what we celebrate at the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we are celebrating that Jesus Christ, the only worthy one, the only perfect one, the only righteous one, has forgiven and given new life to unworthy sinners like me and like you. So this is not to strugglers. I love what Kevin Krell, a Moody professor, says, we must remember that no one is ever worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. And if someone thinks he or she is, he is not. We are only worthy because Christ has made us worthy, and we need to partake feeling unworthy to do so. Maybe that hits home for you this morning. Maybe you come and you've had a morning, or you've had a week, or you've had a month, or you've had a year where all you feel is this great sense of unworthiness. Maybe you can relate to the old Scottish minister, John Duncan, who was administering communion in his congregation one Sunday morning, and he saw a young woman who was trembling. She was so obviously gripped by guilt over her sin that she was hesitating to take the Lord's Supper. And he looked at her with compassion in his eyes, and he quietly spoke to her, take it, lass. It's meant for sinners. If you come this morning and you have this great sense of unworthiness, this is meant for you. It is meant for unworthy sinners like me and like you. It is what we celebrate and commemorate when we take the Lord's Supper. This is not a warning to struggling believers. That begs the question, if it's not a warning to unbelievers, and it's not a warning to struggling believers, what is the purpose of this warning? Again, this is the context. We don't have time to go into all of the context, but you read through verses 17 up to 24. You read really the whole book leading up to that, and you see the context I would simply summarize it like this. This is a warning against our indifference to others. And I don't mean others out there. I mean others in here. I mean other brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the local body that we call Central Church. Our indifference, our even at times, our lovelessness towards other brothers and sisters. Where do I get this from? We see Paul explain this And verse 29, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body. There is a key phrase there. We take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and therefore God in His love chastens us because we often take it in without recognizing the body. But what does that mean, to recognize the body? Well, in a previous chapter, again, context is so important, and what Paul has been building to shows us so much. In chapter 10, Paul has explained what it means to recognize the body. Chapter 10, verse 17, because there is one bread, that bread that we just symbolize with the little pieces, we who are many all of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we who are many, we are one body, for we all share that one bread. When Paul speaks of the body and blood of the Lord, that's not what he does in verse, or chapter 10, verse 17. 
In other places where he speaks of the body and blood of the Lord, he's speaking of Christ's sacrificial death for us. But when he singles out the body, or singles out the bread here like he does in 1017, he's using it in another sense. He's using it to describe how all of us as Christians, we who are many, we're viewed together in Jesus' eyes as one body, the body of Christ, the church, the local body of, of Christ, central church. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. Let me tell you about the loneliest Thanksgiving that I ever experienced. I was a poor seminary student, and I didn't have the money to fly home from Chicago to Colorado where my parents were to spend Thanksgiving with them. So I was just going to hang around, but somebody offered me this way to make some extra money. There was a wealthy couple in Chicago who uh, wintered in Sarasota, Florida, And they wanted to get their Mercedes down there, but they didn't want to drive it themselves. They wanted to fly down. So they paid me, only time I've ever driven a Mercedes, they paid me to drive over that Thanksgiving day and weekend their Mercedes from Chicago down to Sarasota. And then they flew me back and made it worth my while. Well, I thought this was great. You know, I couldn't go home anyway. I get some extra money. I get to drive a Mercedes. Try finding a place to eat Thanksgiving meal when you're traveling on Thanksgiving Day. It was even worse then than it probably is now, but I could not find an open restaurant. Late in the day, I finally ended up pulling over at a truck stop. And there in a diner, even the truckers were off the road by that point, but there in a diner, sitting at a table all by myself, I did have turkey, But uh, it was a pretty pathetic Thanksgiving, celebrating it all alone. Let me tell you about the best Thanksgiving that I've ever experienced. Actually, there have been many like this. It's a Thanksgiving I can think of at one of the church I was pastoring where I not only had all my family members together, but because of what our church was doing, working with a local county jail, we, we brought prisoners out on holidays and even on Sundays, and then we had, after the service, we had them into our homes. So at that Thanksgiving meal, we not only had uh, my family, but we had several prisoners. We even had some people from the church who didn't have other family, didn't have another place to go to. It was this large, eclectic group. We weren't even from the same place in life, and we all came together around this large table in one of the most memorable thanksgivings that I ever remember. What is the difference between those two thanksgivings? Celebrating it individually versus celebrating it corporately. What was going on in Corinth, what happens too often, even in our church, in churches across America, is we celebrate something like the Lord's Supper individually. We treat it like a drive through You know, we approach the whole service, some of us, that way. Um, what options do you have for worship music? Oh, I will take that one. Uh, where is the speaker that I like to hear? I will take that one. Uh, what seating can I have that fits my needs? I'll sit there. Oh, uh, you're going to give me the elements for communion now. That is like me at the truck stop celebrating Thanksgiving all by myself, and that is pathetic. 
It is not an individual experience. It is a corporate experience. And yet the way that the Corinthians were celebrating this, as you read in verses 17 through 22, Paul says, yeah, you came together, but there were factions as you came together. There was division among you as you came together. And so you can read it yourself. There was cliques there that were exclusive, that didn't care about each other, that were loveless towards each other, celebrating the Lord's Supper. So instead of reaffirming that they were all one body as they came to the table, the way that they were treating each other was with indifference and lovelessness, and it showed contempt for the body of Christ. It was like spitting on that loaf of bread. I like how the New Living Translation puts it in verse 29. They were eating the bread and drinking the cup without honoring the body of Christ. Do you recognize the body as you come to worship? you recognize the body as you fellowship with other believers? Do you recognize the body as you come to the Lord's table? Do you view it as an individual experience? Does this meet my needs? Am I, am I getting my preferences met? Or do you view it as a corporate experience? Do you view it as, a, as an experience where, well, as long as I'm with the people that I'm comfortable with and I'm away from those people that I'm not comfortable with, whether you define that generationally or racially or socioeconomically or however you want to define it, Or do you say, you know, the beauty of the body is that He brings us from all our different backgrounds, He brings us together. He removes all distinctions as we come under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are brothers and sisters regardless of our skin color or our socioeconomic status or our gender or anything else about us. We are brothers and sisters. We are related as one body. This was so serious in Corinth, in that church, that Paul says they were subjecting themselves to God's judgment. And I've already touched on this. This is not a matter of, you know, they were at risk for losing their salvation. But look what Paul says in verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined. He is a father and he's lovingly chastened us. Why? So that we will not be condemned with the world. How does God do that? R.T. Kendall, famous preacher, teaches there are three levels of God's chastening of believers. And the first one is internal chastening, and that is when you hear the Word of God or you read the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit takes something in what you have heard and just stabs it through to your heart. That's speaking to me. And, and, and that, that pain that you feel, it's all internal. Nobody external knows. That is internal chastening, and it's designed to turn you back to the Lord, to bring you to repentance. But you know what? We often harden ourselves. We harden our hearts to internal chastening, don't we? And so R.T. Kendall says that when we do that, God resorts, he ups it a notch to external chastening. If we harden our heart to what the Holy Spirit wants to do with, with God's Word in our heart, then he is going to get our attention. 
and he's going to use pain to do it if that's what it takes. That may be the pain of people rejecting us. That may be the pain of financial reverse. That may be the pain of the withholding of vindication. That may be the pain of losing a friend. It may be the pain of sickness, physical, emotional, mental health. And if that doesn't get our attention, in some instances, Kendall says, we see in the Bible examples of terminal chastening. He puts it like this, God has been known to give dishonorable discharges, to say enough is enough. You've had enough time. You're not getting this. I'm calling you home prematurely. Why does God do this? Again, this is not punishment. This is not eternal judgment. This is that God, as a loving Father, so wants to assure that we are in fellowship with Him and each other that He will even use what is painful to us to get our attention. So we see God's grace in His loving discipline. We also see God's grace in His loving exhortation, His warning here in verse 31. If we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Do you want to avoid this kind of chastening in your life? Examine in yourself. Are you, am I, as we come to worship, as we come and we be central church, are we recognizing the body? Are we having a drive-through experience or a Thanksgiving table experience? And that, by the way, is what the Holy Spirit calls us to do. Even this morning, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, verse 28, let a person examine himself or herself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me leave you with just three things to think about as you examine yourself even this morning. These are ones that just came to me praying through this. One, ask yourself this, am I a consumer or a member. And I don't mean going through the, the formal uh, routine of membership here. What I mean by that is a consumer is this. I approach church like I approach a health club. Do you have the options I want? Do you have the times I want? Do you have the services that I want? Is the temperature the right temperature for me? Are you meeting my preferences? If not, there's plenty of health clubs right down the road that I'll go to. That is a that is a consumer mentality. That is that drive-through individual experience of worship and the Lord's Supper. What is a member? And again, I don't mean formal church membership. I mean membership is I belong to this body, that I'm a part of this body, and you're a part of this body, and I, I can't exist with all the other parts, and you can't exist without me. And together, we, we need each other. Are you a consumer or a member as you come to the Lord's table? That's part of examining yourself, whether you are recognizing the body. Secondly, do I value all my brothers and sisters in Christ here and seek unity with them? That's what was going on in Corinth. That's what goes on to some degree in every church. That's what's going on to some degree at Central Church. Do we really value each other as brothers and sisters? Or are there some that, you know, you know we're just indifferent to? Or, or maybe even a step further, we're inconsiderate of? Or even a step further, there are some who are part of this church that we are actively loveless towards. 
do I, if I recognize the body, value all of my brothers and sisters, whatever age they are, whatever race they are, whatever socioeconomic background they are, whatever gender they are? Do I value all of them? Do I seek unity with all of them? Finally, this question. Have I broken fellowship with someone that I need to pursue? If I have broken fellowship with someone, how can I recognize the body if I let that persist? If I don't, Romans 12, 18, do all that I can as far as it depends on me, pursue peace. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 23, if you are offering if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you are coming to worship, if you are coming to the table, and there you recognize, you remember that a brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Don't even go forward with your worship. Go and be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Maybe for you this morning, if God puts a particular broken relationship on your heart, maybe for you this morning, recognizing the body means beginning with repenting from that. I'm going to do whatever I can to pursue the reconciliation and the restoration of that relationship. God has given us this wonderful reminder that He, the only worthy one, has covered us in our unworthiness. He's given us this wonderful reminder that we belong to each other, we need each other, we celebrate this together. So I leave you with the words, let us each examine ourselves. Are we recognizing the body? Let's each examine ourselves as we prepare to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Lord Jesus, We thank you for everything that this table represents. Most of all, Lord, that we unworthy sinners can know the Father, can become children of God because you and your total worthiness have covered our sin and even taken your worthiness, your righteousness, and covered us. Lord, we run to this table. We run to this table because we so need what it represents in our lives, every day on an ongoing basis. We thank you as well, Lord, for what this table reminds us of. We are not saved individually. We become a family. We are brothers and sisters. You desire that we would be one. That is why we all partake of the one bread. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted so that we can come to this table in a worthy manner, recognizing, even celebrating, giving thanks for the body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.